Welcome to The Ringer Podcast Network. To get you through the holiday week, check out TheRinger.com for our July streaming recommendations, analysis on the U.S. women's national team during the World Cup, and takeaways from an exciting start to NBA free agency. Also, we'll be sticking to our regular podcast schedule, so make sure to tune in to your favorite shows throughout the week as usual. And welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. Uh, We've got a lot to talk about this week, so let's dive right into it with uh, Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. All right, it is uh, my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast after a one-week absence, uh, soccer blogger extraordinaire Zach Cram. Zach. Hello. How you doing? Uh, I was doing better yesterday before we heard this tragic news. So yeah, let's just dive dive right in. Uh, yesterday, the Los Angeles the Los Angeles Angels announced that uh, left-handed pitcher Tyler Skaggs had been uh, found dead in his Texas hotel room. Um, he was 27 years old, uh, about to turn 28 in a couple weeks. This is not the first time we've had to contend with the death of a player at the Ringer or cover it or, or even podcast about it. Um, and it's never easy. And this this one uh, was uh, very tough. As they all are in their own unique way, and I don't really think it makes sense to necessarily compare any of them, but it seems like we've had to to deal with one a season. There was Jordano Ventura and Jose Fernandez and Oscar Tavares, and it just seems like every year there's at least one of these moments. The, The adjective I can think of best is, I think you used in your obituary, is just stunned. It's not the kind of news you ever expect to see happen uh, you know, I remember when we learned about Jose Fernandez, I woke up to a text from my friend who said, oh, my God, Jose Fernandez. And I immediately assumed, oh, you know, maybe he needs Tommy John surgery or mm-hmm. something. And whenever you hear bad news, I think especially about a pitcher, your mind immediately goes to he's injured. He's going to be out for a year. And of course, this is so much worse. And that's the stunning part of it. It's not something you ever anticipate that's in the realm of possibility, you think, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, my my distinct memory just from yesterday finding out about it is like if you're just sort of scrolling through Twitter or, or Slack or, you know, just wherever you you get your news from, um, you'll like glaze over something or other or misread a tweet. And and this was like I have the distinct memory of reading it, understanding what it said, and then just like not understanding how that was possible. Uh, it was just so surprising. So, like you said, beyond the um, the realm of of what you could what you would expect uh, in terms of news to coming out come out of come out of baseball. So, obviously, uh, the Angels and Rangers did not play last night as they were were scheduled to. Uh, they're going to play again. Um, I just yeah I want to talk about Tyler Skaggs sort of as he was viewed around the game because so I had I didn't know him well but he was one of the the players that whatever the Angels were in Houston I made a point to go talk to because he was thoughtful and uh, eager to answer questions and you know he came off as a really nice guy and I just you know I don't know many baseball players well enough to make that judgment but you know people who did know him well whether it was baseball writers or teammates or um, just friends from throughout the game uh, just universally said what, you know, an incredible person he was, um, how seriously he took, you know, how interested he was in, in 
the the craft of baseball and what a great teammate he was. Um, you know, I I think he was really really starting to to develop. You know, you could see him like really blossoming as as not only a pitcher but a, a human being as the over the the course of the past year or so. And it's just you know, this is just somebody that. And I tried to capture this, and I'm not re- really sure if I did it justice that. There's something specific to to Skaggs about he he had been around long enough that like we sort of we had gotten used to seeing him, but he was still young enough and improving that we had a lot to look forward to, you know, in terms of of uh, of watching him for the the you know last half or two thirds of his career. And it's just, it just never occurred to me that that this person wouldn't be part of the uh, the baseball world for the next ten years. It's just it's just hard to imagine you know the Angels without him. Hard to imagine baseball without him. I didn't know that much about him personally. I've never interacted with him. I knew him as a pitcher, as a pretty good pitcher. I watched a lot of Angels baseball last year, and that was kind of his breakout. I thought heading into 2019, he would really be ready to take a step forward, and he was inconsistent this year. He had some injuries, but I think what even furthered the tragic aspect yesterday was not just learning about it, but then reading the obituaries from the people who knew him well and learning so many more details about him, learning that he had just recently gotten married, about how he had sort of commandeered uh, the DJ duty in the Angels Clubhouse, about his LA-centric uh, tattoos, which just emphasized how much he loved pitching as an Angel, that he wanted to pitch in Dodger Stadium later this month because that was where he envisioned himself growing up. And I think that's almost the second wave of tragedy here that you hear the news first and then learn more about it. And each detail just is another new gut punch. Yeah. And stuff like stuff that you coming from players who like, I didn't realize had any sort of tie ties to him. Cause you know, you expect Mike Trout or, or Justin Bohr, you know, people he played with on the, on the angels or in the diamondback system to share memories and stuff. And you know, the, the thing that, like once the shock wore off and I I had to try to come up with a something coherent to to say about uh to say about it while I was writing uh Chase Anderson um tweeted out that you know he, he just tweeted out a picture of them uh from a couple years ago and said I'll never forget uh uh in double A making you a dozen cinnamon rolls and you eating all of them and just like it's not just like everybody thought he was a nice guy or, or a great pitcher you know just the you you're really reminded of Baseball players, they have these close friendships where they they mean a lot to, uh, you know, they mean a lot to each other. And it's, you know, I find myself sort of unsatisfied with the immediate reaction of, oh, wow, this is so tragic. You know, I feel so bad for his family. You know, all of that is true. And but once you try to go further than that, it's just so hard to to say anything beyond that. You know, it just really did. This news really did leave me speechless. The really sad reality is that there are at any given time 750 players in the majors thousands of players in the minors it's not like you know these tragedies will never happen but what that means is that it's something to grapple with every year but also the players themselves are affected by it and can uh can understand the experience of having something like this happened in the clubhouse. Jared Weaver talked yesterday because he had played with Skaggs. Jared Weaver had also played with Nick Adenhart, who, of course, uh, died as an Angels pitcher 10 years ago. Uh, I couldn't help yesterday. Uh, I think ESPN 
had an image of the memorial in front of Angel Stadium that people had been dropping off like toys and flowers. And it really struck me that it's a reminder of Nick Adenhart. Uh, but also you saw like John Carlos Stanton posting on Instagram a message first uh, commemorating Tyler Skaggs, but then it was sort of a message to the Angels players. John Carlos Stanton, of course, has dealt with a... A, the tragic death of one of his teammates, and it was a message to the Angels players. You're going to wonder why all of this is happening. Is it real? Why are you suiting up to play a game that seems irrelevant? Uh, and it that one struck me sort of differently from all the other messages because that's, again, a reminder of just the entire world of people that this kind of thing affects. Yeah, and it uh, it really drives home that when a baseball, you know, particularly an active baseball player dies, it's almost impossible to be less prepared, you know, particularly when it comes suddenly like this, that uh, you know, this is not like you're aware of someday your parents or your grandparents are probably going to die before you. Like you don't expect a, a healthy 27 year old to just not be there one day. And and then having to cope with that while performing on a national stage, while being accessible to to the media and fans and, you know, people who are going to watch you go through this grieving process in about as public a, a manner as is possible. Like the reaction to Jose Fernandez's death was sad. It's heartbreaking. It's, you know, it was moving, you know, the, the D Gordon home run, you know, will, will stand out. I just can't imagine having to process all those feelings uh, in a public setting. I think Stanton, you know, in addition to, to trying to be, be helpful. Like I went through this, this is what is going to happen to, you know, the other 24 guys on the angels. It really reveals that this is something that, that they have to think about that. that this is not just something they're going to move on and just fill the spot on the roster. You know, that some, some of these guys, they'll, this is, you know, these feelings will stay with them for the rest of their careers, the rest of their lives. The line that our friend Meg Rally likes to say is that being a baseball player must be such a weird job that, Yes, it's a game and people cover you and everything, but that's their job every day. And sometimes that can manifest in really silly ways, like you talked about last week with Katie Baker, that it's the job and Jason Vargas is threatening to attack a reporter. And that's kind of a funny thing we can all laugh about. But then this is the complete opposite, where it's their job, but they still have to go out and perform and go into the clubhouse. The game, I believe, is scheduled tonight, although I read that uh, Texas is being accommodating and saying that if the Angels want to postpone another game, they certainly have the ability to ask. Uh, but at some point soon, they're going to have to go back into that clubhouse, which is now missing someone, and get ready for a game and go out and play. And it's kind of impossible to imagine that series of events. Yeah, and you know, for twenty-four guys, and and it's dozens more than that. With you know, when you talk about. Uh, players who have been up and down this year and coaches and and clubhouse staff and other people who worked with them every day you know it's got to be tough because for these dozens of people they will all react to this in their own way you know no two people process grief or tragedy exactly the same way no two people had the exact same relationship with with Tyler Skaggs and so it's it's going to be different for everybody but there's going to be, you know, it's all going to happen in a fishbowl. And I just, you know, that's just an, another layer of of uh, how awful this must be to go through for, you know, for his friends in the game and teammates. I don't know if it's even worth, it's 
kind of diminishes the importance of talking about Tyler Skaggs as a pitcher. I'll say that last year, uh, I watched a lot of Angels baseball, probably more than I ever had before because of Shohei Otani. And I watched a lot of Tyler Skaggs on the mound. And I don't think his like final statistics really did his season justice. He came back from an injury toward the end of the season and had a couple really bad games that inflated his overall season numbers. Mm-hmm. But he was a very good pitcher for most of last season. And especially in an Angels organization where they haven't really been able to develop a lot of pitchers, Skaggs seemed like he was primed to take that next step forward. And I'm not suggesting that the, the somebody's skill uh, makes the tragedy any different, but there's... I'm sad that I personally won't be able to watch him pitch again. And that is so low on the level of like what is sad about this situation, but he's a baseball player and mm-hmm. I like watching him play baseball and I won't be able to do that anymore. Yeah. It's like you said, it's not the most important thing, but he, you know, he was a baseball player and this is how we're going to remember him. And part of the reason that, that people you and I like you and I have, you know, any connection to him is because we're, we're used to watching him play baseball and, yeah, it's not just a matter of missing him. It's just it's like you said the the feeling of like he was really onto something. It's not so much the the memories that that I will miss where like, you know, compared to Fernandez or Roy Halladay where the positive memories of things they did are sort of are colored by the by the tragedy of their early deaths. It was, you know, the sense that the best was was not just yet to come, but but about to happen with him, and that's you know what what I'm sort of taking away from from him as a baseball player. But you know, I think it's I think it's appropriate to sort of talk about his game and and his uh, on field impact because you know that's going to be a huge part of, of uh, his legacy for you know for those of us who who weren't close with him personally but knew him very well as a baseball player. Yeah, I well said, and I think it. Really, like I didn't watch any baseball last night. I it was such a a hard thing to to deal with, and it's something that will I'm sure stick with all of us who pay attention and watch and read about him uh, in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, like I said, this is just sort of a hard thing to talk about, but you know, it's the biggest story in baseball, and he was a, a huge part of uh, of the game for for the Angels for the entire American League, and I think his. His impact and the the degree to which he was beloved, you know, across the game, it's it just even even by the standards of, uh, you know, wow, I can't believe you know messages of, uh, of immediate grief. Like people really did seem to to love him, and uh, that I don't know, on on one level, it's uh, it's more tragic for that loss, but it really is something to you know to see just the entire baseball world come out and say almost universally what a great teammate, what a a great person he was. So Mm -hmm. yeah, this is a, it's been, it's been a tough day and uh, I don't know if you have anything more to say about that. I, you know, there really is only so much to say. Hopefully we'll have uh, better news to chat about next week. Uh, We will absolutely have better news to, to chat about next week. We'll probably, you know, we'll talk about the all-star game. We'll talk about the second half, get back to actual baseball, but you know, I, Appreciate you coming on and working through this with me. Until then. All right. 
If you're looking for new furniture, there's a lot to consider, like how you're going to get it in the door or how comfortable it'll be when the game goes to extra innings. Well, Burrow is changing all that with simple, adaptable, easy-to-move furniture that can be assembled and disassembled in just a few minutes. Plus, it ships to your door fast and free. Now, you've heard me talk a lot about Burrow on this podcast for a sofa that takes less time to assemble than it took to assemble my breakfast this morning. Uh, it's holding up great a year in. Most of what you read from me on The Ringer gets written from that very couch. Burrow's clever design features naturally scratch and stain-resistant fabric, plus sturdy hardwood frames and soft foam cushions. There's even a built-in USB charger. Burrow is totally customizable, so you can pick a one of five fabric colors, three light finishes, two armrest styles, any length, and you can even add a chaise lounge or ottoman. Plus, I just launched the Nomad Leather Collection, featuring their same convenient design with the option of top-grain Italian leather upholstery. Give your living room the upgrade it deserves with Burrow, the official sofa of The Ringer. Get $75 off a new sofa and free one-week shipping by visiting burrow.com slash MLB. That's B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash M-O-B for $75 off a new sofa. Support for today's show comes from Sonos. Sonos meticulously designs every speaker from the inside out. They're experts in acoustics and engineering, even work with Oscar and Grammy-winning producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an immersive listening experience. Getting started is easy. Just plug your speaker in and open the app, then connect all your favorite streaming services. Start with one speaker and connect more over Wi-Fi whenever you're ready. All Sonos speakers and components work together so you can customize your sound system. You can also connect your TV or turntable to listen to everything that you love. And they mean everything. With my Sonos Beam, I can flip back and forth from TV to podcasts to audiobooks to music, all with great quality, all from my phone. So if that sounds good to you, go to Sonos.com to learn more. So those of you who listen to the Ringer FC podcast will recognize the next voice on the line. Uh, he is the Ringer's East Coast Bureau Chief, uh, a man whose thoughts on soccer and hockey are revered around these parts, but uh, somewhat, I don't know, an interloper in the world of baseball. It's Donnie Kwok. What's up, everybody? What's up, Michael? Thanks for having me. I, I'm really excited. I've been looking forward to this segment for a long time uh, because you have a special connection to uh, St. Louis Cardinals infielder Tommy Edmond, and uh, you're going to be writing about him uh, for next week. But I want to have you on the pod and sort of talk about that. I couldn't wait for the article to come out. So why don't you <laughs> explain? Tommy Edmond of the St. Louis Cardinals, who's been in the bigs for now, I think, three weeks or two and a half weeks, is my first cousin once removed. I actually had to look up exactly what our relation is because he is the son of my uncle's daughter. So we're cousins, but not on the same generational level. So yes. I looked that up. It's it's first cousin once removed. We might as well be brothers, though. You know, um, <laughs> to, <laughs> Tommy. You know, as as long as I've known him, which is his entire life, because he's twenty four years old and much younger than me, has just been a baseball fanatic. It's very kind of like a storybook thing where he's always dreamed of playing in the majors and to see him actually make it and not only make it, but do well has just turned me from zero to 60 into like an MLB enthusiast. I mean, I followed baseball growing up as a kid. I was an Orioles fan. I went to Memorial Stadium. I went to Camden Yards, et cetera. But I haven't been following the sport at all. Zero. I probably have watched zero baseball since Subway Series, maybe. Um, So... That is a good time to get off the Orioles bandwagon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was into baseball like in the 90s too, in the, in the mid to late 90s as well. But um, my other sporting interests kind of quickly trumped um, my interest in baseball. So, but, you know, in the last month, 
following Tommy's progress. I've been watching MLB streams, MLB TV. I've been watching Fox Sports interview clips. I've just been kind of really jumping headfirst into it. So it's been fun. Yeah, and he's like you said, he's been doing really well. Uh, he's hit two home runs in his first uh, 15 games. He's got a double and a triple. He's hitting 273 with power. Um, you know, I I was familiar with him. I didn't obviously didn't know he was your cousin until I think when he got drafted, you mentioned something about it. Yeah, he was drafted in, in the sixth round out of Stanford in 2016. And, you know, up until, you know, Stanford is obviously a, a pretty big baseball program, D1 and everything. Um, so when he made it to Stanford, it kind of crossed our mind sort of collectively as an extended family that, you know, Tommy's pursuing his baseball dream and there's a chance he can make it to MLB. And then, of course, he got drafted, you know, not a high draft pick and then kind of proceeded through the minors. But all along the way, I think, you know, there was hope there, but for that hope to turn into reality, it's just kind of, it's, you know, amazing for everybody. Yeah, that's that's sort of the kind of prospect I, I thought he was um, coming out of Stanford. His biggest uh, moment was, uh, it was in the 2015, um, I think it was the regional, they were playing at Indiana, who was a national seed, uh, and he mm. hit a walk-off home run in the deciding game, and there's a great picture of Stanford celebrating in the background. And Kyle Schwarber, who was the catcher for Indiana at the time, uh, sort of, or no, I guess this would have been 14 if this was, uh, if this was Schwarber's draft year. Uh, anyway, the Schwarber was, was, uh, crouching in front of the plate with his head in his hands. And, you know, I, it's a great photo and I didn't realize, you know, it was, it was cool to find out your connection to him, but you know, he was sort of a, like a scrappy, you know, pretty athletic middle infielder, but guys like that succeed in college and, uh, and, you know, burn out in double A, you know, never even come close to making the majors all the time. Um, and so the issue with him uh, was not like the the grit, the hustle or anything like that. You know, he was sort of that stereotypically scrappy middle infielder. Um, right. He's actually, you know, but the big question I had was the, the power and he's hitting for a fair amount of power now. And so like, if, if that's there, then he could absolutely have, you know, a substantial major league career. Yeah. And from what I gather, from talking to him and his dad and, and other people like you, Lindbergh, the Cardinals are kind of known as a franchise or as an organization for kind of fostering the careers or developing players like that or, or being a home for kind of scrappy middle infiel mm -hmm. infielders that can do everything. But, you know, I talked to his dad, John Edmond, who coached him throughout school. You know, Tommy grew up in San Diego. Um, and John, his father, was actually a four-year player at Williams College, D3 in Massachusetts. Uh, but anyway, John was saying that Tommy has always been kind of an under-the-radar player, like, and just sort of, you know, not highly touted, uh, but always kind of assimilated quickly to whatever level he was at, and then kind of uh, proved himself uh, and proved that he belonged. And, and it looks like, you know, small sample size he's doing it in the majors. I don't know, but I mean, like, I don't follow MLB super closely, but I do know that they usually give—I'm not trying to jinx Tommy here, but I know they usually give— prospects and rookies kind of like weird or high numbers and when I saw that he got 19 that kind of gave me a little excitement I mean does that mean anything um probably not at this point like the the high number thing is more spring training spring so, training yeah so you know when they bring in guys who are like a year or two away from reaching the majors they give them a number in the 70s or 80s and and you know when they come up they uh 
they get a lower number. So like by the time they actually reach the majors, uh, they can usually just if the number they want is available, the you know the the team will give it to them. So so that, I mean, it's so that basically means sign. nothing. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's it's certainly a good thing that they're giving him. Uh, I don't remember what what number he wore in college or what. Uh, or yeah, you know, actually, I don't I'd... know if, if that's like his first choice, but you know, yeah, you see, like when Jimmy Rollins came up, he wore number twenty nine for a couple weeks in his first uh, first year before settling into number eleven. Um, and then number six, then back to number 11. So you right. know, you, you'll see guys change numbers all the time. I will say, like, he started out as, like, a just pinch hitting most of the time. I think he started three, the last, his last three or four games. Right? Yeah. Yeah, he has. I mean, and the manager, Mike Schilt, has been talking him up a little bit. Uh, it's, you know, like, again, I'm jumping into this. Uh, it's like I've watched, like, my first MCU movie or something. I'm jumping mm-hmm. into MLB kind of blind. So, you know reading about the Cardinals and reading like the beat reporters and stuff, it seems like they're not a great hitting team. Um, And from what I gather are kind of a feast or famine team, a lot of home runs, but not a lot of kind of contact hitters or people getting on base. And I think that's why Tommy, I think I heard a couple St. Louis Cardinals podcasters. Look, Bauman, I'm listening to everything. So yeah, I don't (laughs) even listen to Cardinals podcasts. So (laughs) they were basically what they they said. They called Tommy like a breath of fresh air, a little crackle to the team. Uh, making things interesting. And, 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 you know, the fact that, you know, he started, as you mentioned, just a little pinch hitting uh, coming in, you know, sliding in at eighth or whatever for the pitcher. Um, and now that he's, le- he's leading off, you know, starting, playing second or third. And Lindbergh actually pointed me to a story that he wrote around the turn of the year about the rise of the super utility player, or, mm-hmm. or maybe not the rise of, but just the trend of how valuable they are. And I talked to Tommy a little bit about that when I interviewed him yesterday. Obviously, he wants to be a full-time, everyday starter. Uh, but I think that versatility, his ability to play anywhere in the infield, essentially, and also the outfield, I guess, in a pinch, makes him kind of a very useful uh, player for the Cardinals. So, yeah, I'm excited, man. I was, I was going to say I was there, actually, for his first hit to yeah. at City Field, which was an amazing experience. So we can get back to, like, his, you know, the prognosis for his career. But you talk to him, you know, what is... Yeah, you know, how is he adjusting? How is he taking all this in? Yeah, I mean, I think anybody that knows Tommy would say that he's an extremely level-headed individual. Uh, doesn't get too high or too low. Very focused. Um, very hardworking. And, you know, like, it. he's just wise beyond his years. You know, he's very adult. Uh, you know, like I said, he's only 24. But... Um, he takes it so seriously and he's so dedicated to getting better and improving and adjusting and acclimating to whatever level he's playing at as he, as he's uh, risen through the leagues that, um, you know, I was talking to him on the field after the game at city field. And I was like, my heart was beating through my chest. I was like so excited with so much adrenaline and he was just so calm and kind of like, you know, he seemed like he'd been playing in the majors forever, (laughs) you know, which is crazy because when I, one of the most jarring things for me watching him make his debut or watching him um, on TV is that, you know, I, I've I've seen Tommy play in the Cape Cod League. I've seen him play. He played for the Staten Island Yankees. I went to some of his minor all-star games and stuff like that. But seeing him in the dugout and on the field with grown-ass men with full yeah. beards that are like 35 <laughs> and, and make $20 million a year, I was just like, Jesus, this is like my kid cousin. 
and he's here with all the. I mean, he, Tommy said that he does get chirped a little bit in the batting in the on deck circle, like it's past your bedtime stuff like that, because he is very youthful looking. Uh, but behind that youthful veneer is a very serious, smart person who's like, you know, I, I, I wouldn't bet against him. Yeah, I was gonna say like this is probably would be even more jarring if you had been really into baseball over the past ten years, because like there are guys in that in that dugout with them, like Yadier Molina, Paul Goldschmidt, Adam Wainwright. Like these are like, you know, the, the people that you think of, you know, who have been around for 10, 15 years and, and are really iconic figures in, in major league baseball. And there he is like, you know, right in among them. It's just, you know, I, I sort of get a little bit of that when it, you know, whenever I see somebody who like I, I covered when they were in college, Paul DeYoung, who's on the, on the Cardinals is, um, a guy I covered a little bit when he was at Illinois state and like just seeing him in, uh, in a Cardinals uniform, even like, you know, two or three years into his career as a major league regular. And like, you know, I was not, you know, he's not my cousin or anything, but it's still like, right. weird. like I remember, you know, I still think of him in that college uniform, uh, before. And it's, it's just it's, been an adjustment. I can't imagine like somebody who, um, you know, I had seen in, you know, play every you know play a lot in little league or or travel ball or something like that yeah it's funny I, i was thinking about this in writing the piece too that there's like these degrees of attachment you have you know like covering somebody and then you know being an extended family like a cousin and then obviously like being a dad or mom i mean i talked to his dad yesterday and he's just through the roof in a way i mean it's obviously relative to your degree of closeness when the player succeeds or when other people are praising him, it almost feels like they're talking about you, you know, or it's like you can take pride in it. It's like, and your joy is amplified. Like I remember, you know, it really felt real to me, everything. Obviously I'd seen him live and I'd seen him on TV, but I was flipping on Sunday night baseball and he hit a triple and there's fucking A-Rod talking about Tommy Edmund. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. Jesus, like, (laughs) you know, it's like, it it really is just kind of surreal. So I've, I did want to ask you again, like, so last night, Tom Eshelman, who is a, a, a player I really liked coming out of Cal State Fullerton, he made his major league debut for the Orioles and they, uh, um, his parents had been following him around the country throughout the minors. And so they were on the Orioles broadcast and, you know, they just seemed, like you said, just over the moon. And, you know, I'm just can't imagine what, what his dad must be feeling. Cause this is like. I, to a certain extent, if you're an athlete, you're in the moment, like you almost don't know better than to, you know, you know, you almost don't know well enough to just sit around and marvel at, at what being in the majors is like. But I, you know, I imagine his dad. Yeah. What, what is he, what did he say? Uh, you know, when you talk to him, I talked to him yesterday and this was after the Cardinals had a, a road trip in San Diego uh, at Petco, which is like the park that. I guess it was originally Qualcomm or whatever it was called that Tommy grew up going to. Uh, They're all from San Diego. So Mm -hmm. I think it's just been a whirlwind three-week experience of milestones. Like you said, his first at-bat, his first hit, his first home run, his first homecoming. And all of these things have been coming so quickly, his first start, that it's just, you know, he's just uh, as excited as... I guess a parent can be. I mean, parental joy is sort of a universal feeling among people who have kids. There's first steps, first words, you know, diploma, engagement, whatever. But when when it's on the athletic stage in front of thousands of people, it's, I don't know. I, I, 
I wish my son, if I ever had a son, would get to that get to that level. I was actually even thinking hypothetically, if I were to have a son excel in any sport, <clears throat> if I might not choose baseball outside of like, you know, injury dangers that obviously mm-hmm. are detriments in other sports, but just there's something about baseball because the at bat it's kind of just a singular moment where all eyes are focused on you. And, and uh, it's, a, it's just a cool thing to kind of see somebody you know or somebody that's related to you in that spotlight. I think there's something to that. You know, I sucked at sports, uh, but my bro- <laughs> one of my brothers was really good at baseball and played through high school. And I remember my parents like really being like, you know, being the way you described that, you know, the having the it, baseball, I think is also just sort of a, it's a good live sport because like you said, it happens in discrete in- increments. So like, you know, when your kid is on the mound or at the plate. Right. Um, and it's the good and, balance of like individual and team because you're yeah. on a team, but you get those individual moments. Yeah. And you know, the, the season is long, which I guess is like, if you're going to literally every game is probably a little bit of a slog, but you know, it sort of helps get into a routine. Um, you know, also like just from a parental perspective, the money is pretty good and the risk of injury is <laughs> relatively low. So, yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, I, I I think at this point in my life, I enjoy live hockey better than live baseball. But, you know, the I if I had to to steer my hypothetical child into one sport, I'd probably steer him into baseball over hockey just for, yeah. you know, for non like non game related reasons. We got to start our ringer NHL pod coming soon every time every time i write about hockey you know every time i write about hockey one you edit it and two like three people say is there going to be an nhl podcast so <laughs> me you and bakes we'll talk to i them. know i i i don't know if we've got time or if like if or if it's just these three people um these same three people tweeting at me or emailing me every time i write about hockey but you know so if there's interest you know i i it would be a blast so let me, let me ask you a question, Bauman, since yeah. you're an MLB expert. Like, I you know, am. obviously, I'm <laughs> obviously <laughs> it's my cousin. I'm super geeked. I've been following it closely. But, you know, this is 15 games now. It's a handful of at-bats. He's shown that he can hit major league pitching. Uh, but the player he actually replaced, I believe his name is Jed Giorko, yeah, recently re-aggravated his injury. So Tommy thought, actually, when I talked to him at City Field, he thought he might get sent down the following week. He stayed up. Um, seems to be staying up for the time being. But, you know, you've seen millions of, you just mentioned one, like players make their debuts and and, and shine in the beginning um, and possibly what, falter, fall off, get sent back down. I mean. Mm-hmm. Or the league catches up. So like, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, pitchers see him again the second time. Yeah. And also, I guess just with the Cardinals, like, what do you think? So the the thing you mentioned about him being able to play multiple positions, like that's Jerko's job. Um, Matt Carpenter could do that. Paul DeYoung could do that. You know, that's something they develop players to do. And I think that if he proves it, like the issue with him that the reason that I thought he might not make it was I thought he might get the bat knocked out of his hands. Like there's a level of, and I think, you know, I, when you asked about this earlier, this is what I said, that there's a level where you have so little in-game power pitchers just aren't scared of you. Mm-hmm. So not only, you know, is, are these players not hitting home runs? You know, pitchers aren't pitching around them enough to walk. Like Ben Revere is the guy who had just zero power and actually had a pretty good eye at the plate, but he never walked because everything he saw was in the strike zone. And so this was what I was worried about. And certainly through two weeks, he's demonstrated that that he can tag a mistake. Um, so we'll see how he adjusts. But, you know, I think the, the defense is good enough. The athleticism is good enough. You know, if he's good in the clubhouse and um, 
you know, like you said, adjusts well to uh, whatever, you know, plays up to whatever level of competition he is, you know, there's potential for at the very least being that kind of super utility guy. And I, you know, when Jerko comes back, I don't know if the Cardinals are going to have a need for him. And I think if he's right now, he's still developing and I think it will be good for him in the long run, better for him to play every day at AAA rather than sit at the end of the bench and just get the odd pinch hit appearance if that's what happens. Um, but I think, you know, he's, I, I I think you're absolutely right to be excited about him because he's definitely impressed me in his, his first couple weeks in the majors. Is this Wong guy at second base going to kind of keep he's, him out of? Yes, I think so. Um, he's sort of streaky. There are good Colton Wong years where he's a, you know, like a, an all-star caliber player. There are bad Colton Wong years where uh, he, uh, he can't stay in the lineup. And this is closer to a bad Wong year, but the Cardinals are committed to him long term. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think Tommy would have to be, you know, he'd have to be just absolutely on fire in, in order to, to move Wong off the starting second base job. So right. that's and, what, you and, know, that's why I said, I, I think there's a future. I don't know if it's in St. Louis long-term. Right. Right. Well, this is, I, I don't know. I, like I said, I've been, I've really enjoyed this, uh, you know, watching you watch him, uh, <laughs> do this particularly he tagged, he, he went deep off, you know, your cousin went deep off Zach Cram's cousin, Chris Paddock last week. Um, it, it, huge moment in ringer MLB. Uh, oh, is that why you mentioned that that was like a civil war moment? I, I was, I didn't catch the reference cause I know he's not actually Zach's cousin, but Zach, Oh, he is it. <laughs> Zach wishes he was his cousin. Yeah. He's, he's probably the favorite pitcher of our MLB staff right now. Um, so I don't know if if we still like Tommy Edmond after he uh, after he went uh, went deep off Chris Paddock then um, you know I think it's a yeah this has just been this has just been a lot of fun and I'm glad that you know you are sharing this journey with us and you know turning your your family into content for for everybody else's enjoyment and when he makes his first All Stars team I'll make sure to connect you guys oh yeah absolutely um, <laughs> if he makes if he makes an All Star team we're going to talk again a lot. <laughs> um, until then uh, yeah thanks thanks for coming on it's been great thank you so much hiring used to be hard multiple job sites stacks of resumes and confusing review processes but today hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done ziprecruiter.com slash ringer MLB ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash R-I-N-G-E-R-M-L-B. ZipRecruiter.com slash Ringer MLB. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And so we come to our final segment, which uh, we're going to record uh, in time to get out and watch the USA-England game, um, which I hope turns out to be a good decision. But what is always a good decision is bringing on Ben Lindbergh. Ben. Hi, thank you. That was a very strange segue. Uh, 
even by my standards. <laughs> well, we are talking about a sport other than baseball that is in true. this segment, which is unusual for me <laughs> to suggest that we talk about something other yeah. than baseball <laughs> on the show. <laughs> yeah, it's not unusual to for sports other than baseball to come up. It is uh, definitely, yeah. as you said, unusual for you to suggest them. We might talk about superheroes or something, but basketball? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so by virtue of having clicked on or thought about the ringer.com, I'm sure everybody <laughs> listening uh, knows everything that happened in NBA free agency over the weekend. I am still trying to piece together who went where. I know the Sixers no longer have Jimmy Butler, but they now have now have Al Horford, which has been an interesting uh, adjustment to make just in terms of my own personal paradigm. Um, but you, so this obviously brought up uh, contrast, you know, this flurry of, of free agency, something that everybody was excited about uh, in NBA circles, fans thinking about this, you know, reporters covering it, podcasting about it, writing about it, uh, even as the playoffs were going on. Like it it almost sometimes feels like the the off court drama is it, it's it's like the the greater overarching story than even what happens on the court. And this could not be in any starker contrast to just the deeply unpleasant uh, major league offseason and free agency. And so you, you wanted to to talk about this. Yeah, I, I think those of us who cover non-basketball sports are sort of looking with envy at basketball. Our, our pal Kevin Clark wrote for The Ringer about whether the NFL could model itself on the NBA in some way when it comes to free agency. And MLB is probably, if anything, even more in need of taking a page from the NBA's book. I think there are a lot of reasons why MLB's offseason functions or doesn't function the way that it does and why it's different from basketball. But how can you not look at what just happened in the NBA and say, that looked really exciting? I mean, condolences to our colleagues who were up at all hours all weekend trying to figure out where everyone was going. But for fans, that seemed like a ton of fun and a stark contrast to baseball where, I mean, MLB free agency just ended a few weeks ago, really, when Craig Kimbrough and Dallas Keuchel signed. And we had those guys with their free agencies dragging into the season. We had big stars like Bryce Harper not signing until midway through spring training. The last couple off seasons, most guys have eventually gotten signed, but the activity has shifted so far, so deep into the winter that we're all just sort of sitting there twiddling our thumbs, wondering when they will sign. And in basketball, there's just this orgy of excitement, just this day where everyone goes everywhere. And it's so much fun for everyone to track and to speculate about where guys will be going and what this means for the league. And of course, just the anticipation, as you said, for this day, for this event, that maybe to a greater extent dominates the playoffs and the weeks leading up to that event. So it just seems like a lot of fun. And I think it's natural to wish that baseball could get some of that, which I think is probably easier wished for than done. Was baseball ever like this? No, I don't think so. I don't think it was ever like this. It wasn't ever like everyone signs all at once. And mm -hmm. and I think there are reasons why that's more the case in basketball than in baseball, right? I mean, there just aren't as many players. There aren't as many stars. 
There are max contracts, so those are sort of easier to negotiate, I think. There's right. the salary it's not cap. A, it's not about money. It's about you know where you want to go, who you want to play for right. and with. Yeah. What city do I want to be in? Which teammates do I want to play with? And and you can sort of decide that stuff right when the offseason starts or even before. You don't have to wait and see because that's in place already. And, and you have the salary cap, so there's only so much that teams can do, and there isn't really this process of can we pursue persuade our owner to open the coffers a little bit and let us do this or do that. And so I think there are differences there, structural differences in the sport, in the collective bargaining agreement, in the union. I mean, there are many reasons why this is the case. While we'll never see every MLV free agent sign on one day. And I think there's something to be said for spreading the action out a little mm-hmm. bit over the winter. I mean, you know, it's it's great. It's exciting when that happens, when everyone changes teams all at once. But then the NBA season doesn't start till late October. So, you know, you can kind of just look at where, where the rosters look, what the rosters looked like once the dust settled. And that's fun to look forward to for a few months. But I think there's something to be said for baseball the way it used to work, at least, where, you know, some guys would sign right away, but then you'd have the winter meetings and things would kind of be parceled out over a period of weeks or months. But most of the action was done by Christmas, by New Year's, so that you then had, you know, a month or two to just sort of survey the rosters and say, okay, this is where the stars are. These are how the teams are shaping up. You know, if you're a ticket buyer, if you're a season ticket purchaser, potentially, you have some incentive to do that. Teams can construct their marketing plans around the stars on their rosters, which I think is a good thing to advertise. Hey, this player is on our team. This player is pretty good. You should come see this player. That's really difficult to do when your star signs on March 12th or whenever Harper eventually signed. And, and you know, the Phillies fans responded at that point. I mean, there were hundreds of thousands of tickets sold immediately after that. So maybe in the end, it doesn't make that much of a difference. But it was such of a, a shadow hanging over the sport and not in a fun way. You know, it, it wasn't like, oh, hot stove. Where's this guy going to go? It was like, will this guy go anywhere ever? Yeah. It was just a depressing slog, really, to some of these signings. There's a lot to a lot to cover in what you said, dating back to. I think this is the first time in four years of podcasting together. I've heard you say the word orgy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's. I guess let's start with like one thing that strikes me is. The individual play is just the difference between an NBA player and an MLB player, because I don't think there's any major league baseball player ever. And I'm thinking back to like really exciting free agent seasons like uh, the this would have been 2001 when A-Rod and Manny and was this was the year after Kevin Brown. There was another pitcher. Um, it might have been Mike Mussina all moved in the same offseason. And like that, I remember there being that this was functionally pre-internet so maybe not this level of excitement um but that same sense of like wow the landscape of the league is is shifting and i can't wait to see where where these players go this this i remember you know this is in living memory um but at the same time even an a-rod uh or a manny machado or bryce harper like that's the level of, of free agent it takes to generate the buzz of you know i don't think there's anybody who could who can move the needle the way Kevin Durant could or LeBron Mm -hmm. James, like in order to get to like the Jimmy Butler level, you know, or D'Angelo Russell level, it takes one of these guys who is, you know, a once in every five years free agent. Um, Just because like you said, the baseball 
uh, an individual baseball player doesn't move the needle as right. in terms of, of on field slash on court and just in, in pop culture. It's just not, it's not the same sport. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think there's like a general, there's like a cultural element to which basketball has sort of decided that it's exciting and baseball has sort of decided that it's not. <laughs> and I I don't think it's all about, you know, like Rob Manfred's being like, you know, the games are too long or, you know, mm-hmm. it's just th- there's a sense of dread and pessimism around baseball, which I think is, you know, is someone who is very well suited to um, to uh, express those emotions. You know, it has been good for me as uh, professionally, but yeah, I, I think it's been to the de- the detriment of the game as sort of an entertainment product, whereas in basketball. Like the league, the media around the league uh, has sort of um, decided to to embrace the circus, embrace the soap opera. Mm-hmm. I just can't imagine, you know, I, I'm sure we've mentioned this a lot, but like, I, you know, I think a lot about what if we did an NBA desktop like show, right? You know, what <laughs> stories would we cover? I don't think you could like no. I'm. I'm yeah, I, this might dare one of our competitors to go out and do that and prove <laughs> me wrong. But, uh, you know, I just don't think that that tone, you know, that tone of, of just even when when you're disagreeing with something or thinking that, you know, something, you know, talking about something you think is bad, just that tone of like excitement. This is this is fun. I'm having a good time. That you know, ongoing party atmosphere, you know, just baseball right. is just so much more serious. Yeah, we we would have to talk about the Phillies buying bamboo on MLB desktop, I guess. I don't know what else we talk about. Probably just brawls, people getting plunked over and over, bat flips, and people getting mad about bat flips. I mean, mm-hmm. it's sort of a, a tedious conversation. Yeah. yeah, it's the same thing over and over. And that's in baseball, there's this personality policing, I think, this tradition that it dates back to the origins of the game and the racial makeup of the league and, you know, all of these larger factors. And, and it doesn't, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be base, you know, it like baseball doesn't have to be basketball yeah. to be fun or interesting. Like right. there is the, a distinct, you know, it it's and it on on some level, like it's OK if baseball is just sort of a little more culturally conservative. But yeah. there's you know, it, it's but, you know, that that's just one of the reasons why this doesn't happen or maybe even couldn't happen in baseball. Right. And there are these larger structural issues. I mean, there's the season itself, 162 games. So every single game doesn't contribute that much to determining the outcome of the season. There's that. There's just the structure of the sport. It's maybe less conducive to building stars because you can't put the bat or the ball in the hands of your star exactly when you want to do that for the most part. There's a batting order and the ball is hit a certain place. You can't run plays where you give the the ball to your superstar whenever you want to so that he can take the big shot. There's that. There's the fact that baseball has become this regional, localized game where people are into their team, but maybe don't follow it quite in the same way at the national level. And that's reflected perhaps in national ratings. And then it's reflected in, I think, what becomes a national conversation about baseball, which at this point is almost nothing, really. And when it's anything, it's why hasn't Bryce Harper signed? Why haven't Manny Machado signed? Which is just sort of a a depressing story that doesn't really reflect well on the sport. So 
there are all these sort of demoralizing trends that I, I think make it more difficult to baseball for baseball to break through in this way, which isn't to say that baseball is actually dying or that it isn't still extremely popular or that it isn't often the best watched thing in its local market if there's a team in that city. I mean, there's a ton of interest in baseball. It just doesn't lend itself, I think, to these moments where everything stops and everyone is watching the same game and everyone mm-hmm. is watching the same free agent market and wondering where this guy's going to go and refreshing Twitter. And, you know, maybe the fact that MLB has tried to consolidate the trade deadline this year, I think there are multiple reasons for doing that. But I think one byproduct of it might be that there's more activity. I mean, I don't know that this particular year with this yeah. collection of teams and sellers and buyers will lend itself to that. But I, I tell you what, the worst four hours of my year every year are the, the MLB trade deadline where I'm trying to write and keep up with what's happening. And so if that makes it more intense, then... <laughs> right. Well... Know. What's bad for you as someone who has to write about every move is is good for the the person who's on MLB trade rumors. But and that's on the Twitter. closest we get to yes. That's the closest we get to what you were describing, where we had you know like eight or nine people writing at the same time, covering different angles. Yes, yeah, and that's, that's a the, lot of fun, and and that yeah, it's could happen more now that you have this single trade deadline and everything has to be done by July 31st. I think that could make things more exciting. But the offseason is, I think, when you want more of that excitement, when you want to try to get at least a little bit of the juice that the NBA is generating here. And if you're not going to get it with Twitter drama and guys having public beefs, then it'd be nice if you could get it with moves being made and with the winter meetings actually being a time when yeah. moves are made as opposed to just a time when moves are discussed and then people talk about the luxury tax and you know whether they can actually afford it and maybe we'll just wait until February or we'll promote a prospect who doesn't make any money and we'll sign some guy and we'll use these new advanced developmental techniques to make him better. I mean, I think all of these factors are leading to less emphasis on free agents, except when you get the big Bryce Harper, Manny Machado type free agent, which is rare. And MLB sort of squandered that from an attention getting mm-hmm. perspective this past winter. They, they, except took, they took a slam dunk, like needle moving positive story and just and turned it into a negative referendum on or so they turned it into a referendum on on the state of competitiveness in the game right. uh, that came back against them. And, you know, you brought this up. This is the reason. Right. The, the the reason is that Major League Baseball doesn't have a salary cap and the NBA does. And looking at the way free agency works in both leagues, you would think the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Uh, that There is a, you know, most NBA teams, because there's a salary floor, most NBA teams, they'll spend to the cap and the, they'll figure out creative ways to get around it because it's a soft ta- or soft cap. And like they worry about the luxury tax, but this doesn't get in the way of. The Golden State Warriors paying for superstars to, you know, they'll pay the luxury tax if that ends in five finals bursts in a row. Right. You know, the even like the the worst hedge fundy vampire owners in in the sport for the most part, they they're willing to spend to win. And major league owners realized that it's more profitable to spend a hundred million dollars on payroll for an eighty five win team than it is to spend one hundred eighty million dollars on payroll for a ninety win team. Yeah, and, we, and we've just talked about given this that pre- calculus. Yeah, and right. I'm and I'm sorry that like that I'm I'm 
fucking preaching again. I <laughs> This is not fun. I wish everybody would just try to win, but that's unfortunately not the world we live in. And this, you know, we could we we couldn't have this like we couldn't have the NBA thing, you know, just the structure mm-hmm. of the league, the max contracts that makes a difference in terms of, you know, and just like the 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 culture of NBA players have more agency than the major league players do just because of the the structure of the game. Um, and, you know, maybe there is something to, you know, baseball players get their individualism uh, beat out of them at a, a young age. And but all of this, like the reason there are no free agents, because everybody's signing under market uh, contracts and stuff, it like this is all of a piece. It's that winning still matters in basketball and it doesn't to a large extent from the ownership level, which is where, you know, that commitment to to winning from the ownership level uh, is what moves the needle in free agency. And right. there, that just doesn't exist in baseball anymore. Players want to win. Front office people want to win. Coaches want to win. Owners, I think they'd like to win if they could, but it's not. It's not priority one. It's not an yeah. imperative because they're yeah. making a lot of money before the games begin. Even if they don't sign someone because of the broadcast contracts, because of ML BAM, because of revenue sharing, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things sort of incentivize owners not to be as aggressive. And as we said, there are few free agents in baseball who move the needle as much. You're not going to go from bad to contender because you signed any one player in baseball. Even Mike Trout can't make the Angels a playoff team. So no free agent is going to do that all by his lonesome. And it makes sense to wait from a a profit perspective for teams because it's been shown that players tend to sign for less when teams make them wait and make them sweat. And the season's approaching and spring training is starting and guys who are unsigned eventually often lower their demands because they want to play and they don't want to be left out in the cold and sit out half a season like Keichel and Kimbrell. And so teams, I think, tend not to crack before the players do because players have only one career. Their income comes from playing. Teams have income from a number of sources and their season will go on regardless of whether they sign any one player. So I think that's why we've ended up in this situation. And as you just alluded to, it's probably only going to get less exciting in the short term because of this rash of contract extensions that Mm -hmm. we saw over this past winter. And we talked about it at the time, but it wasn't that long ago that Jeff Passan wrote the the famous uh, right. you know, 2018-19 offseason column. And by the time by the time we got here, all the free agents were off the market and yeah. all the teams that were interested in, in signing free agents just weren't doing it anymore. And you look ahead and there could have been some exciting free agent classes, but a lot of these players, for whatever reason, maybe because they observed what was happening in free agency and said, I want no part of that, I will take the money now, they are not going to be on the market. And so they will stay where they are and there will be less intrigue on the the whole winter for us to speculate about guys we're going, where guys will go. And I think one thing you heard this past winter was the idea of some sort of signing deadline in baseball to kind of artificially compress the activity so that, (sighs) I mean, what's that going to do, but just give, you know, like a, you know, like the, 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 
edge of the map with the dragons next to it for players. That's that would <laughs> right. just be an outrageous leverage play for owners. It probably would be. You know, maybe it would compress the activity and and be more fun for fans if there were an artificial day you had to sign by, just because you wouldn't get things dragging into February and March. But I agree that it would probably have the effect of further depressing salaries. And we've seen the average MLB salary decrease for back-to-back seasons now, which is unprecedented in the free agency era. Yeah, and you know, just to b- sort of tie this together before we uh, before we wrap up, you know, I don't think either of us expects under any circumstances the kind of freakout that M- NBA free agency is. It's its own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is never going to be a time when people talk about Alex Cobb's destination the way they talk <laughs> about you know Terry Rozier going to going to Charlotte. It's yeah. just not the same thing. But it could be what what I think could be possible for baseball is that sense of a team could change its own fortunes and you know players could do something that 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 turns the league on its ear uh every offseason and you know there's a there's more mobility in the nba just you know because younger players get taken taken care of uh better um the you know free agency and restrictive free agency and salary escalation happens sooner there are caps not only on the um on the salary, but the length of contract. So players move more often um, and, you know, players make enough money in these one, you know, these shorter term deals that, uh, you know, LeBron James can be a free agent, to, you know, two or three times mm-hmm. uh, and and turn the league upside down every time he moves. Same for for Durant, you know, the the same for uh, for Jimmy Butler. You know, it's we we could have that sense of possibility because it's not. You know the the point is not just that one night where everything goes in the in the the you know put the lid on the boggle board and shake it all up. Mm-hmm. The point is you go into it you know and it and it gives team or it gives fans hope. You know you look at at what you know there are for some reason about a hundred thousand Knicks fans on staff, and you look <laughs> at the way they were talking about this season um, and the potential. You know maybe you know. Not just maybe we get Zion Williamson in the draft, maybe we sign Durant. And that just it's such a the the weight for that is so much less than even a success like the best case scenario tanking rebuild uh you know is probably the Astros. And that took years mm-hmm. and was so low probability and it was just so, you know, there's just nothing to to really hang your hat on as far as hope for a fan. Right. And so it it, it just like it's obvious why. The NBA free agency is exciting and, you know, and baseball's free agency is a fucking Ivan Turgenev novel. Like, <laughs> it's just – it's not just boring. It's actively depressing. Yeah. And so it's – but yeah, it's the, the pursuit of short-term profit over the long-term welfare of the uh, – societal institution you know as mm-hmm. Karl Marx said societies will do what they are designed to do and that is what uh that's what happened to baseball now that we've gotten the Karl Marx quote in we can officially you end know I wish somebody else had said that but like because it just seems like such a such a cliche to, to do that so well anyway, we'll see maybe we've the, gone the, from basketball to orgies <laughs> to Russian literature to Karl Marx maybe the next CBA will change things but in the meantime I guess you and I can just start writing about basketball more often in I'm December because uh, <laughs> the ringer's really lacking for basketball content these days 
Yeah. I mean, I, I like writing about basketball. I yeah. Just, like, there, you know, there's no need. You know, that's... <laughs> All right. Uh, so we're going to talk about something else next week. Uh, enjoy your holiday. Yeah. Because there's, there's a holiday, you know, and we're going to you're going to play uh, play baseball under the fireworks like in, in the mm. sandlot and so forth. Yes. Which always bugged me because obviously fireworks don't create that much light, not enough light to, <laughs> to play baseball and only for a few minutes, which is not long enough to play baseball. No. Anyway. Unsafe conditions. It's a nice scene, but that always bothered me. Yeah, All right. Sandlot. Talk to you next week. All right. Week. On that immense non sequitur, I'm going <laughs> to let you off the phone like you so desperately seem to want to go. So. All right. All right. Talk to you next week. Okay. That'll do it for this week's Ringer MLB show. Thanks to Zach and Ben, as always, for joining me today. Thanks also to my special guest, Donnie Kwok. You can find his work on The Ringer and follow him on Twitter at Flocka. Thanks to Craig Horbeck for producing today's show. Thanks to Tommy Edmond, Kevin Durant, and Ivan Turgenev for giving us stuff to talk about. Thank you for listening. And happy 4th of July to everybody out there. And go USA! Support for today's show comes from Sonos. Sonos meticulously designs every speaker from the inside out, and once they deliver it to you, you can set it up in minutes and control whatever audio you choose in any room of the house, all from your phone. Go to Sonos.com to learn more.